Mitchell Beer is a self-described climate change hawk and communicator. He curates a newsletter about climate change called The Energy Mix. He raised so many brilliant points and talks about how journalism shouldn't be involved in promoting environmental issues, but rather it should be involved in getting to the truth. He talks about the importance of getting people with different priorities uh, into the conversation by balancing urgency and hope. Before the conversation gets too dark, Mitchell reminds us that the last chapter on climate change has not yet been written. Enjoy! All right. Um, today we have Mitchell Beer. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, of course. So if you could just start by telling us briefly about what you do. Um, I work as a consultant and as publisher of The Energy Mix, which is a twice-weekly uh, free online digest on climate change, energy, and what we've been calling post-carbon solutions. Gotcha. Well, that's very succinct and <laughs> that's very brief. Um, so your education was in journalism. What made you decide to switch from a career in journalism to more content development and communications? A couple of things. First of all, at one point I realized that a number of the organizations that I was thinking of as sort of best sources of, of, of reliable, evidence-based, often science-based information while I was in the press gallery were organizations that I could probably help out more directly. Um, if I went to work for them rather than being on the other side of that wall um, as a journalist. The other thing, um, and this is probably not even an historical footnote, it's just not that important, um, but I was in the gallery between 1982 and 84, and in 1984 there was a federal election coming up very soon, and I had gone into the press gallery in 1982 with a specific interest in writing about um, energy, both renewable and not, natural resource development, forestry, appropriate northern development, which mm -hmm. was an issue then as it is now, um, indigenous issues. Um, and um, for a couple of years, there was uh, enough interest in that that a freelancer could um, could make a contribution and, frankly, make a living at the same time. Sure. With the election coming up, it was all just straight pre-election coverage, not particularly on those issues. Um, and I was getting impatient and felt that uh, perhaps I could make more of a contribution on the outside of journalism than mm -hmm. in the profession that I'd always thought that I would be in. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Um, so in your opinion, what is the capacity for journalism to promote sustainability and promote action around climate change? Well, I have trouble with the word promote because <laughs> although I've been on this side of the wall for 35 years in terms of journalism or, or the rest of the world, um, I would still maintain that it, and just as vehemently actually, that it is not journalism's job to promote. When we mm. get into a place where journalists become um, advocates, um, we get into um, and sort of Fox News and the attempts to establish the same in Canada, sure. and it's not pretty. The, um, the interesting and challenging task, I think, for reporters is to get at the story, mm -hmm. to get at the evidence, to learn the issues, to find out what the challenges are, to separate fact and fiction, which, by the way, for institutions like the BBC in the United Kingdom means deliberately making a policy to keep climate deniers out of the studio and then sticking to the policy once it's made. Uh, one quick example of this isn't too long-winded is that after the, um, just, just the, the, the transformative moment this past Friday when 1.5 million students in, uh, I believe it was 120 countries and more than 2,000 communities around the world um, 
uh, walked out of school for um, uh, Fridays for Future, the BBC of Scotland, uh, who, you know, they were looking for somebody who could comment on this, and the best they could find was a notorious climate denier. That's what journalism shouldn't be doing. In 2019, that's not acceptable. Honestly, in 1980, that's not acceptable, but certainly in 2019. It's a really interesting point because we speak about that a lot in politics. I know we were just talking about it in my office, but what do you think about the fact or maybe the perspective that we're, you're holding yourselves as journalists to this kind of high standard where you just want to you know, tell the story, share the facts, but as you mentioned sometimes other sides of the argument are being presented in a way that's more inflammatory and maybe not holding themselves to that same journalistic standard like we see reporting on climate change all the time that's not representing actual facts and how can we balance those things when we're trying to have integrity but also trying to balance out this rhetoric that's coming from both sides? Well, honestly, at that point, I think the story is um, that there are... um, you know, actors out there who may be large, who may be influential, who may often be fossil funded, um, who are deliberately trying to obscure and confuse the debate in order to delay action in spite of the fact that the IPCC has put us on a 12-year deadline to reduce global carbon emissions 45%. Can you tell I've been saying that totally. too often? It's yeah. just that yeah. very challenging target just sort of rolls yes. out of me. I guess it has to roll out so of all of us. So make that the story uh, make that more the than story. just the make that the story. change and, the actual. And, and back to my example from BBC Scotland, DSmog UK did a great job of that. They just, they, they just called it. And DSmog in general has just been on BBC case wonderfully. The same has been going on in the U.S. inside climate news. Um, uh, won a Pulitzer Prize for attracting the fact. So you won a Pulitzer Prize, oh my God, as a yeah. former journalist, right? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, for, for tracking the fact that Exxon knew this in the 1970s and chose the wrong path. Yeah, um, so, so, so those are not only legitimate and important stories to tell, those are stories to tell that can change the course of our civilization and perhaps um, uh, ensure that there is a future course for our civilization. Do you think that those stories are being told in Canada? <sighs> yeah, you know, in improv we like to say yes and to everything. Um, um, yeah. The story's getting out to some extent. Is it getting out far enough, wide enough? No. Um, it's been really hard, and you might want to, from some of your questions, you might want to get into this a bit later. It's been really hard for anybody um, involved in policy or politics to effectively counter the fossil lobby because they're powerful and they're everywhere, and I don't want to sound paranoid, but they've spent generations uh, building a narrative and building a... Uh, a, a culture, and that's why they call petrostates petrostates. It's really hard to make the transition when you're a petrostate and Canada is one. So there's a lot more to be done. So bearing that in mind, um, what is your role in this? What are you trying to accomplish with uh, with the work that you do? And, and also, what kind of organizations come to you for assistance? Well, in my consulting, I either work with organizations that are involved, that, that, that need some combination of communication support or research um, on climate and energy or on other aspects of the, uh, of the climate challenge. Um, with the energy mix, uh, we started the publication just under five years ago. It's essentially self-funded. I volunteer my time, and then the firm pays the folks who are paid to, to work on it. Gotcha. Um, and, and honestly, I'm, I, it, every single day, however good or bad the news is or whatever the mix is in any particular edition, it feels like such a privilege to 
get to do that. So, so in case I sound like I'm complaining, it's quite the contrary. <laughs> um, but um, we started the publication for a couple of reasons. One was that as of May, 9, May uh, 2014, um, there was already way more content out there than anybody could keep track of, coming from way more sources than anyone could keep track of. Um, and we felt, I felt, we felt, that if we could at least compile some of the best of the best of that, and curated it in a in a in a publication that brought some of that material together. It wouldn't stop the rest of the search that anybody else had to do because everyone has different information needs, but it would at least short circuit it. And that turns out to have been an important thing to do because I would say anecdotally, I don't have data for this, the volume of content on climate change I would say probably doubled from May 2014 to the Paris conference and has doubled again since. And these days that feels like wow. an understatement. Um, so, so the need is there. The other, the other two pieces that um, we've realized are really important are, first of all, to catch the crossovers. Um, you know, somebody who is a specialist, even within climate impacts, you know, somebody who's a specialist in coral reefs probably doesn't know the latest on cloud cover, and that's no criticism because those are all both specialties out of themselves. People who are specialists in climate impacts won't be specialists in renewable energy and energy efficiency. People on some branches of renewable energy don't need to know about energy efficiency and vice versa, and none of them are following following the collapse of the fossil industries, which is a really fundamentally important issue and opportunity from mm -hmm. the point of freeing up the trillions per year in investment that we're going to need to get this done. So a publication like The Mix, if it's doing its job, and whether we're doing the job is not for me to assess, it's for <laughs> others to comment on, um, would bring those pieces together so that people at least get a glimpse in passing of aspects of the issue that they don't deal with every day. Um, and the third piece, but I was also kind of saying this as an answer to your last question, um, is that we really try to balance urgency and hope and come out um, to the end argument that the last chapters of this haven't been written yet and it's still in our power to write them. Mm -hmm. Because what we're hearing more and more from people now is, why do you even bother? Isn't it too late? Aren't we done for? Mm -hmm. And that's only guaranteed if we assume that it's guaranteed and give up. If we keep going, we've still got a shot, a good shot. Mm -hmm. so. Which flies in the face of what we saw last Friday with all those thousands oh, of students coming out. And in our uh, digest today, um, we were privileged to get permission to reprint in full um, a blog post by Alden Meyer, who has been doing climate work with the Union of Concerned Scientists in the U.S. since 1989. Amazing. And his reaction was um, incredibly inspired at what they've been, achieve, been able to achieve, incredibly sad that they had to, that our generation honestly has let down yours, and that there's so much that we've left behind that still needs to be done a determination to still do what we can as our generation to help correct that. And then just thanks. That's really amazing. Um, that sort of uh, dovetails, this conversation dovetails nicely into my next question, which is, which are some of the main challenges that you face in the work that you do? So with respect to your consultancy work and with respect to the energy mix? Um, a major challenge is... Um, getting people's time and attention um, and um, getting climate change, climate solutions into the conversation. 
And I think that is partly a function of how until now we have gone about talking about climate change. And I think this probably applies to other environmental and sustainability issues as well, but I, I don't know most of those fields as well. Um, what we've all of us done, and I'll certainly accept my share of the responsibility here, is that we'll go to people and say, well, you know, of course you understand it's a crisis. And, you know, pre-IPCC we were still saying this, but now we're saying we've got a dozen years on the mm -hmm. block is running, right? Um, so you've got to make this a priority. We are saying this to people who already woke up this morning knowing what their priorities were. Sure. Right? And you work on Parliament Hill. You see those priorities go by every day. And, and, and you know, in what universe is it my place as a climate hawk? to tell somebody that my issue is more important than missing and murdered indigenous women, that my issue is more important than the opioid crisis. I could go on, you don't want me to, it'll be too long, but it won't end well, right? Lots of issues but, that are all, yeah. But the point being, I mean, anyone who's been in this issue long enough can connect the dots mm -hmm. from anything to climate change in one hop. And for about the last three or four years, I've been trying to find the exception to that rule, and I haven't yet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's play connect the dots. But... That's not where people start from. They already know where their priorities are. And I don't know anyone in the climate community who would deliberately be so rude, frankly, as to go to anyone else and say, ah, your priorities, nah, 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 pay attention to me, 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 me. Mm -hmm. No one in the community is like that. I promise. And yet, out of a sense of urgency, coming from a good place, out of knowing that this needs to be done right now before it's too late, that's still, I fear, some variant on the way we come across. So a few colleagues and I have been working with the idea that if we start out listening rather than lecturing and approach people with something along the lines of, you know, I'm a climate hawk and I'm here to listen. Okay, pick yourself off the floor. I wasn't kidding. <laughs> Real, oh, you're recovered now. Okay, let me say it again. We're mm -hmm. here to right? Um, and find out what that priority are yeah. priority is. I'm sorry, what those priorities are, and from that point, try to discover together with them um, whether there is anything that ties in with the climate crisis that can actually help them get farther faster mm -hmm. with what they're trying to do, just by tilting their plan 10 to 15 degrees to factor in carb uh, climate change as well, or whether there's some aspect of climate change that is going to defeat what they're trying to do despite their best efforts. Um, a colleague in BC told the story on a webinar two or three weeks ago of a mm -hmm. group of, actually this was Union of Concerned Scientists again, it was a group of um, farmers in Montana, um, and it was a gathering that had been arranged for them to connect with climate scientists, and the conversation started from not from the fact that there's a climate crisis and we need to deal with it now, but from the fact that these farmers were having trouble with water availability mm -hmm. and water access. Mm -hmm. And the data that was used in the conversation was not a projection of where Montana is going to be at in 2100, because none of us are going to be here in 2100, so how do we know? It was the historical data that they were already living with and the changes that they had already seen mm -hmm. on their farms, with their crops, with their land, in their lives, in less than a day by their own pathway, they come around to carbon pricing as a viable um, uh, a viable policy tool to deal with their concern, which was water scarcity. And nobody told them, okay, now you need to pay attention right. to carbon pricing because we're from the climate movement. They decided that for themselves. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that every conversation is going to end on carbon pricing, but 
more conversations will end with how can we all do this together in a bigger tent with more communities of interest that didn't see themselves in the picture until Mm -hmm. now and right now today do not it's difficult to connect the dots for sure i liked your point about the farmers and their their perspectives and how that can kind of you know engage people and they can come to the same conclusion through lived experience come to their own conclusion yeah okay if it's not the same conclusion but they're finding their pathway to deal with some aspect of climate change that makes sense to them yeah absolutely we're all going to do what we can and what we have to Yeah, so I think something that is interesting that, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about is when we start scaling up from those conversations. So Canada is so diverse as a country and and as an industry-based country, we have farming and we have industry-based provinces and we have coastal provinces. But when we look at Canada as a country on the global stage, what do you think Canada's role is in regards to climate change, knowing what you know as a climate hawk? It's funny, right now I think Canada's getting a lot more credit on the international stage um, for what it's saying on climate change than necessarily for what it's uh, what it's doing at home. Because as you know, the uh, so translating those words into action has been just just brutally difficult domestically. Um, doesn't help when people go and buy us a pipeline. We can talk about that if you want, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we will reserve comment. <laughs> so, well, yeah, hey, no, I can comment if you yeah. like. Um, um, no, I mean, the I, I was at the Paris Conference in 2015, and it was my first uh, of the UN climate conferences. And, you know, the whole line, can, you know, Canada's back, my friends, Canada's back, and we're here to help. That took the conference by storm. Um, Canada was by no means the only one advocating that way. But there was such a sense of joy and relief that Canada was um, um, sort of trying to find its way back to a responsible role uh, on the international scene. Um, there were a number of initiatives that the country has introduced through the COP process or off to one side of the COP process. There are a number of areas where we're falling short. Most, um, most blatantly, most blatantly, rather at this point, on fossil fuel subsidies, which are continuing in effect expanding uh, by a hundred million dollars over four years as of yesterday's budget, um, and on uh, international climate finance. Next year, the deadline to hit the five hundred million dollar, I think it is, per year threshold for. Um, uh, wealthy country funding to the Green Climate Fund. Canada made an initial announcement on that in 2015, and it's been cricket since, and we're not yet at our fair share contribution. So do you uh, think that, you know, when we bring it back to storytelling, there is value in Canada just being a figure that speaks about the need for climate action? Maybe that sets a precedent on the global stage, even if when we come home we may or may not be doing that, that good of a job? I think there'd be value to that if we have time. You know, with so much of this, I was in correspondence with a colleague today about the federal budget. And really, I mean, you know, is is the glass two-thirds full or one-third empty, and which of those two matters more? If the year were 1980, and um, Trudeau's dad's government had just proposed a national home retro- a national building retrofit program and $130 million over five years for uh, electric vehicle charging stations, assuming the technology was ready in 1980, which it wasn't, um, that would have been transformative, you know, and nobody would have looked twice at, oh, you know, sure, another $100 million for the fossils. Well, you know, they're destroying dry holes anyway. We don't really have a tar sands industry yet. It's 1980. Um, that would have been 
astonishing to see that proportion of support for clean versus dirty energy, for future versus sunsetting energy industries. But it's not 1980. We have 11 and a half years to get it done. And after the 45, after we've achieved the 45% deadline, um, uh, the 45% threshold in 2030, then we have to get to zero by 2050. So there isn't time for half measures, and there isn't time to not back up our talk with action. And in some ways, Canada is, um, but in some ways, it's not. And and as of last week. France is being sued by four environmental groups for not moving fast enough. And that's the Macron government, right? I mean, this is the yeah. one, you know, the government that brought up the One Planet Summit. It's not fast enough for yeah, environmental groups. Certainly right? not unique problems to Canada. It's happening everywhere, that's for sure. Um, something that I think we have been talking about or that I find really interesting is, and I liked it in your bio because it mentioned you're interested in the unusual suspects when it comes to climate change. Yeah. And I'm a big energy efficiency person, which is becoming more and more a usual subject, but it hasn't always been that way. And I read something even this week on how roundabouts can result in lowered emissions because sorry, how... roundabouts, like traffic circles, oh, yeah. because cars aren't idling. Um, it's just so interesting. There's so many unusual little pieces that can play a role. So what are some of those unusual suspects that you, you like writing about and thinking so, about in climate so, change? So this would be more like unusual strategies. One of the really interesting critiques that I've seen around, uh, and this is actually a critique of the Green New Deal, it's not the sort of a fake Republican talking point that it's a $100 trillion program. This is not true. Um, but uh, one of the interesting critiques is that it never addressed urban sprawl. Right? It never addressed urbanization and the ferocious difficulties that creates for any kind of energy efficiency or, or resource efficiency. Um, I haven't seen anywhere much that anybody has addressed the sort of the, the good news, bad news story that on one hand our buildings are considerably more energy efficient now than they were a generation ago, um, but our average home size has increased enough, think monster homes in the suburb of your choice, average home size has increased enough to offset that improvement. Totally, yeah. So we've put in all that effort and we're, you know, we're, we're at square one. That's a really good segue because I liked something you said earlier. Uh, you mentioned you like referring to the solutions as post-carbon. And I mean, you've been writing about these issues since the 70s when, I mean, there was definitely environmentalists, but some of the conversations we're having now around climate change definitely weren't, you know, happening in the same way. So how how is the way you speak about energy or you've been covering energy and climate change uh, changed since then? Like what has been the main difference? Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, climate change is on the map. I'd say that what really has changed um, is uh, I, I'd say that what really has changed is a much wider sense that at least the energy supply transition and 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 the greater reliance on energy efficiency that that is not only doable but economically favorable. Right? Um, when we started Canadian Renewable Energy News um, in uh, 1977, and it ran through about uh, 1983 or 84, and I was with the paper for most of that time in one capacity or another. Um, you know, if um, if we could get a photo of a 300 kilowatt wind turbine that somebody had put up, we'd get that on the front page three editions in a row if we could get away with it, because that was incredible news, and it wasn't going to happen again for a long time. 
and then the thing tipped over in a windstorm. Oh well. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I'm, 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 par I'm parodying it, but it really or a was. Blade really, breaks it, off it, or well, something. there was one in the on Magdalen Island that did. Yeah, yeah I was living in PEI before this, so we've had our fair share of problems with blade erosion, which yeah. is a whole other yeah. topic. Right, know. right. But it's. We wouldn't have tried to make the argument, well, mostly we wouldn't have tried to make the argument at the time that the renewables were more affordable than non renewable. You know, not on a sort of a straight cost comparison. Sure, if you factored in um, the full cost, you know, the full economic, environmental, social cost of those non-renewable sources, you know, whether fossil or nuclear, sure, since the beginning of time, renewables and especially efficiency have been have been less costly, I'll say, because how do you factor in the cost of a Fukushima or a Chernobyl disaster? How do you factor the cost of the Deepwater Horizon? Uh, disaster. Yeah, How do you factor the cost of climate change? But on a straight, uh, a, a straight comparison, we didn't find ourselves making those arguments too often unless it was a solar cell, solar cell being installed in some very remote location that no one ever was going to be going to for another yeah. three years. But it does feel like there's more and more win-wins now. Now, solar plus storage, so you're factoring in the cost of the storage as well, Solar plus storage is not only um, uh, cheaper than the most expensive sources; it's cheaper than the in in some markets cheaper than the least expensive um, sources of of non-renewable energy. It got to the point where uh, a call for tenders for solar um, got a response at I think it was 1.76 cents per kilowatt hour as a point of reference when I was starting in this in the late 70s. Large hydro in Quebec cost three cents a kilowatt hour, and my dad, who was a consulting engineer, swore nothing would ever be cheaper than that. Well, yeah. la new large hydro in Quebec is now up around ten or twelve cents, and this solar bid came in at one point seven six cents. But um, there's an excellent industry publication that we monitor called Green Tech Media, and they snarked at it. They didn't even believe it. They said, "Okay, Saudi Arabia, you got your headline, but nobody believes anyone's making money at this." So it's at the point now where the prices are getting too low totally. in some cases, yeah. too low to be credible, too low to be doable. Three or four cents a kilowatt hour in North America is not massively surprising anymore. And at that rate, you know, we're we're certainly competing against extreme oil like Tarzan's like yeah, oil. I know Alberta oil. just came out with a competitive uh, renewable bid recently as well. It was somewhere around that price, which it's, is amazing. It's mind-boggling. Yeah. And it's not all about the economics, but we can get tripped up by the economics and now they're on our side. But now that we are there with the economics, like we're approaching parity or maybe already at parity, where, based on that, where do you see the global energy industry in 10 years from now? Like, and do you think Canada's will follow, or do you think we'll be lagging behind the global trend? Oh, well, we're so far behind the global trend. I mean, it's um, there are still projections that they're coming from the likes of the International Energy Agency at Exxon, which, of course, has no vested interest in these projections at all. Pure as the driven snow is ExxonMobil. Um, I am... You know, projections that, that you know, oil, oil and gas demand is going to continue to grow, uh, or, you know, it'll level off in 10 or 15 years. Uh, we also see counter-analysis um, saying that between awareness of climate risk, not only on the part of the public, but therefore on the part of investors, continuing um, uh, reductions in the cost of renewable energy and storage, and all the various other influences on that market, that it's going to be an incredibly fast turnaround. Um, there is analysis out there, um, and honestly, I haven't read in on the latest of this, but will be over the next couple of days, um, <coughs> that um, as we 
<clears throat> moving to an election in Alberta, um, what has been uh, undercutting the Alberta market is not the lack of pipeline capacity, but the lack of competitive demand. You know, and and um, or, or or at very least uh, the fact that Alberta just can't compete against the shale fields in, uh, in 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 the U.S. But all of these issues, I, we tend to. Um, Assess and argue them through a domestic lens and through a very politicized lens. And again, you know, driven by the by the fossil lobby federally and certainly in Alberta, Saskatchewan, BC. Um, but the world is changing. The market is changing, whether we keep up or not. Um, and we have been hearing over the last two or three years that clean tech investment, clean tech performance in Canada is falling behind. Uh, and if we want to be a part of the solution, and if we want the jobs, whichever of those is the more important of the two, we're losing out on both. Like if, if we're so behind and I, mean, I don't think we're there now, but if, if we carry on this path and we're so behind on um, investments in renewable, investments in tech, are we going to get to a point where the global economy is sort of moving in a direction and we're, we're behind with leadership, but we're also behind with our actual ability to stay on pace with the tech and with the energy sector. I haven't heard anybody say that we're in that place now. Um, but... <laughs> you know, I guess that's the obvious end result. You know, yeah. if we if we you know nickel and dime it and and, and go with a snail's pace when everybody else is racing. Yeah, I, I mean, we hear a lot about innovation, so it just does sometimes mm. feel alarming if we can get ourselves into a oh, point where we're not innovating. Oh, I'm so even. sorry. Haven't you heard? Innovation is about <laughs> helping the tar sands oil sands industry get its production emissions right. down. Carbon recapturing. Yeah, I mean <laughs> that. Now you're talking. Yeah, yeah. that's innovation, right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, and the only thing we forget when we when we when we talk that kind of crazy talk, not that. You know, everyone shouldn't decarbonize, but at some point production just has to shut down in a way that doesn't leave behind the workforce that that industry is working really hard to lay off and, and automate anyway. The jobs are it's being lost. It's a more uncomfortable conversation, though, to yeah. have. Yeah. yeah, it is, because it's a familiar conversation. You yeah. know, But what I've never heard anybody answer, let's assume that we wake up tomorrow and that $100 million over the next four years wasn't needed because one of the... And it is an incredibly smart, tech-savvy industry. The fact that they can do what they do is potentially destructive of everything that matters to us, but brilliant, just yeah, at the level of point. how did you learn to do this? And let's acknowledge that expertise. Um, let's assume that we wake up tomorrow, which we won't. We will wake up, but this won't happen. <laughs> um, let's assume we wake up tomorrow morning and um, someone's figured out a way to cut production emissions um, to zero. Awesome. Great mission accomplished. Well, the assumption we're making is that somebody else is responsible for the rest. And we'll acknowledge that, you know, it's been really hard to get product from Alberta out to end use, and not even because of supposed pipeline bottlenecks or rail bottlenecks, but, you know, they try to send something through a pipeline and it ends up on the bottom of the Kalamazoo River, right? Or coursing down a suburban subdivision in Mayflower, Arkansas, or, or, you know, fouling the, you know, everything that moves in the Gulf of Mexico. But sometimes, occasionally, they're making money. So they, they must somehow actually be managing to deliver crude oil somewhere. Yeah. Right? And when that happens, that's the other 90% of the emissions and they're not accounting for that. Somebody's going to if they don't. Absolutely. Something we were talking about before we, we had this interview and or figuring out how we were going to word it without being totally um, 
political or polarizing, but this conversation is really polarizing and heated and we're seeing protests and we're seeing really inflamed, um, you know, conversations happening in the media. Do you think at any level that heated nature of this conversation is helping? Is it helping yeah. convey the urgency of the issue or is it is it doing us more you, harm than good? I, I think it really undermines the urgency of the issue, honestly. I mean, it needs, uh, what it needs is people communicating, finding common ground, um, you know, realizing that we have a common interest in doing something about this. It has not helped when an elected member of the national parliament uh, appears on a podium with a white nationalist like Faith Goldie and then refuses to apologize for it. And I don't mean that as any kind of partisan statement. It's a choice that one individual elected official should not have made and his staff have, uh, should not have permitted him to make. And what about the sort of inflammation on the other side? Like sometimes we hear, um, I think, you know, like climate change is, is going to, you know, kill all of us. And we're, you know, it's this really polarized conversation on the left, like almost alarmist. And, you know, I feel this like sense of anxiety about what's going to happen to the planet, uh, you know, if we carry on this this trajectory as well, but do you think that that's helpful in, in saying this is a real issue to people, or is it just scaring them? I was um, I was mentioning earlier that um, uh, with the mix, we we do try to be very deliberate, and I really hope we hit the mark um, in setting the right balance between urgency and hope, um, between yeah, just the immediacy and and just the the breadth of this crisis and the things that we can do about it. And I am convinced that, um, and, and I've had this argument with, with colleagues in the climate community occasionally in public settings, um, that um, you know any of us who know this issue well enough to be working on it day to day probably have enough information in our heads that if we wanted to, and we shouldn't want to, we could walk into a room of any size, get everyone's attention, and have everybody on the floor in a panic in 45 seconds just with <laughs> our words. Um, I, it gives me no pleasure to feel that, you know, I or we have that power. But the thing is that I've seen people do it. I've seen, um, you know, what a long ago colleague of mine used to call the awfulizing, right? And I get where it comes from. In contrast to the fomented stuff that we've been seeing with the yellow vests, I at least believe that the um, sense of alarm from our side is sincere as genuinely felt. Um, uh, and I don't believe it's 100% genuine on the other side, but that just might be my bias. Um, but I don't think it does any good. Once again, um, the last chapters of this have not been written yet. Um, it is not guaranteed that it is too late to stabilize the climate. We won't stabilize it where it used to be, but there's still scope to stabilize it. It's not guaranteed that we're going to win, and you don't get into something important just because you assume you'll win. You get involved because it's important enough to get involved, and brutal as it is to suggest that the future of humanity is not assured, the future of humanity was not assured when um, the plague swept Europe. The future of humanity was not assured on September 1st, 1939, when Hitler invaded Poland. Um, and a mobilization on the scale of what it took to win the Second World War is the analogy that's now being used for what we need to do now. And from well, there, but from what I've understood, that's a bit right. So if we, if what it's about is getting all of us mobilized, 
unless we think that scaring everybody out of their wits is what's going to do that, in which case, carry on. <laughs> but let's ask ourselves first, how's that working for us so far? So our podcast is about change makers and for change makers. Um, so one thing that we ask all of our guests on the show is, um, do you have any advice for young environmental change makers like us? Well, first, I don't know that it's for my generation to advise yours, given the mess we are at risk of handing over to you. We usually take advice from people who've done well and have a record to back up that advice, and the logic of that would say that the advice anybody in my generation would give you would get a 5 degree Celsius average global warming. Um, that said, since you asked, um, um, there is so much that I see a new generation of change makers, of organizers, of activists, of policymakers working on. Um, whether that is um, just following the science and the policy evidence so much more fearlessly and just pushing to get it done. Mm -hmm. um, you know, knowing, you know, as we all do, but as we've heard said a million times, hits your generation harder. Um, um, knowing the time is short, mm -hmm. you know, and just sort of keeping up that, that, that resolute work. Um, um, walking out of class, you know, and supporting the school strike movement. Um, something that I've been, a contrast that I've been, been reading about, and I think I strongly agree with this. I need to give it some more thought, but it, instinctively I agree. Um, is that if you contrast the kind of offlizing that we were talking about a few minutes ago with the just the genuine message of moral outrage and moral imperative, you know, that is personified by Greta, but that we're getting from the whole movement, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, for, you know, for which she was the spark. Um, there's a strength in that that... Um, I think anybody in younger generations can take advantage of it. Um, at some point, it needs to be backed up by the evidence, it needs to be backed up by the how-to, it needs to be backed up by the arguments. But starting from that position of, um, this is what's right. Um, we don't have time for the politics, we don't have time for the diversions. It's right. Mm -hmm. And I'm here to tell you that I'm not stopping until we're on that path, mm -hmm. right? And I don't have a choice but to stop, right? I think there's um, there's there's a power and an impact in that mm -hmm. that I think um, uh, younger change makers can and should take advantage of. Um, I guess just the other point, working in Parliament, um, it was Green Pack that introduced us for this um, for this uh, interview, and. What Green Pack is about is, as I understand it, is not a short-term fix. You know, if the vision is to have environmental champions in every corner, in every party of every legislature, um, federal, provincial, territorial, mm -hmm. in the country, that's not going to happen overnight. Mm -hmm. um, but for um, um, people working as parliamentary staff, I think there is an opportunity Opportunity. I hope there's an opportunity because I'm not seeing it with my own eyes um, to do the same kind of 
talking across the lines that we were discussing earlier. Um, that if you are, um, if we happen to be meeting in the office of a um, veteran member of the New Democrat Caucus, um, but the office down the hall um, is a conservative uh, MP with an interest in rural issues. Um, maybe the place to start the conversation is on water availability mm-hmm. or rural depopulation, you know, not on um, the fact that the LRT is probably never going to get built in Ottawa, right? <laughs> that doesn't matter in rural Alberta. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. So start where people are and do the same thing that we've been talking about, but at the level of we're all in the same boat. We're parliamentary staff. Let's just enumerate all the things we have in common from, you know, for that, how long have you got? Mm-hmm. And by the way, maybe this is an issue we have in common as mm-hmm. well. And that's a really potentially powerful way to work across the line. You work here and I don't, so you would know a lot better than I do whether that's realistic or just crazy talk on that. Well, I think it's pretty realistic. Okay. Yeah. I think that that's a really important uh, message to end on. The message that you kept coming back to during our conversation was that, you know, it's it's hopeful. It's urgent. It's very urgent, but it's hopeful. You know, and the last chapter has not been written yet. It hasn't been. It yeah. hasn't been. Uh, and again, I'm leave it at that. It hasn't been. <laughs> well, thank you, Mitchell, so much for coming in today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Civil Discourse is hosted and produced by Green Pack Parliamentary Interns Ella Harvey, Nancy Schwepp, Jesse Hitchcock, and Mavis Chen. Audio was edited and mixed by Tasnik Khan, and podcast art is by Ajeebser. This podcast was made possible by Green Pack. Thanks again for tuning in, and hope to see you next time.